Culinary Institute of Child Nutrition proudly welcomes you to The Mix-Up, an iBytes production. I'm your host, Chef Patrick Garmong, mixing it up with culinary experts from the child nutrition community. Welcome back to The Mix-Up. This is Chef Patrick coming to you. I know I've been away for a little while and I apologize for that, but we have been on the road. Chef Garrett and I have been out checking out different conferences, doing a lot of training and interacting with so many of you while we're out on the road. It really gave me time to pause and reflect on what the purpose of this podcast could be for the rest of this calendar year. And one of the things I really reflected on was learning about the journey of so many folks who have migrated into child nutrition to start elevating the feeding of our students. So many of you shared great stories with me about how you came into this field. And so today I want to share with you um, a good friend of mine, a chef, a registered dietitian, Chef Stephen Menahart. Now, Chef Menahart and I met several years ago at uh, a Healthy Kids Collaborative, and we've been able to connect with each other um, just kind of throughout periods of time as we've uh, kind of grown in our journey. And I've learned so much about him recently, and I thought his story is one that really should be told and shared out with so many because we all come to child nutrition from different backgrounds. So, Chef, welcome, and we're excited to have you. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. We've been talking about doing this podcast for a while. I'm excited to finally make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, when I first started this podcast, it was really in response to the pandemic and how different school districts were navigating the field. And you were just buried with stuff at that time and we couldn't make it work. And um, I'm so glad now that we've all been able to kind of take a little bit of a breath and look at what we're doing out there that we're able to connect and you're able to share your story. So if you would, tell us a little bit about how and why you got into child nutrition. Sure. Well, I started in the food service sector um, at age 17. So it's been almost 26 years now. Um, my first cooking job was back in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I grew up in a small town called Tecumseh, Michigan, just south of Ann Arbor. It's about 8,000 people. It's a small factory town. Uh, Tecumseh Products, interestingly, used to be headquartered there. And in interesting food service fact, we used to make 90 percent of all the refrigerator compressors in this country out of Tecumseh products. Um, oh, wow. That's interesting. We also made a lot of small lawnmower engines. So, in fact, you still see because some of these things have endured 50, 60 years because they were so well made in the factory right there in Tecumseh that you'll still see small lawnmower engines with our logo. You'll still see some old school refrigerator compressors. You know that old walk-in from the 50s you still have? Might have a Tecumseh compressor on it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> those, those ones that you have to put a sheet tray under for the condenser drip? Yeah, you know, you just need to do as we say. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But anyway, I grew up in a small town and as soon as I could, I got out of there. And um, Actually, I moved to Italy for a year as a rotary exchange student through a nonprofit rotary organization, a global organization and I uh, didn't know any Italian just kind of wanted to get out of my hometown if any of you've ever had that feeling and um, I moved to Italy I moved to Milan Italy one of the fashion capitals of the globe and probably no more different place I could have found um, so I attended a school called Liceo Scientifico which is a scientific high school so on day three in my new world I was in a class where students were translating Dante's Inferno from Latin to Italian so you can imagine I was a little out of place, um, but yeah. I did. Just, luckily, I played soccer. So every day at recess, I at least had a little bit of street cred because I wasn't terrible at soccer. So over time, I learned Italian. I, I lived with three Italian families. I, I, I call them my three Italian mothers. So one was Milanese from Milan, uh, born and raised. One was from Rome. Uh, one was from Naples, Napolitan. So, wow. Um, so I got to hit you real quick. Two things I've taken out of this. First of all, I'm learning more about you than I ever had before. I am actually a Rotarian. I didn't know you did a Rotary Youth Exchange. So that's really amazing. Oh, yeah. I'm still indebted to that organization for just helping me on this opportunity to just expand my horizons, you know, and as a 17-year-old, you know. Um, and I just learned so much. And it really did start my passion for cooking because I realized, wow, this food is incredible. I mean, just if anyone has been to Italy or even experienced regional Italian cuisine in this country, it's like you realize that much of what we try growing up is just red sauce and meatballs and ziti and uh, manicotti and lasagnas. And you kind of go, well, that's Italian food. And then you get to Italy and you travel from region to region, as I did, had the opportunity to do with Rotary. And you realize, wow, this is just every little corner of this country has a different cuisine. And a different that's, what I was gonna, that's exactly what I was going to say on my second point is like, you really hit three very distinctive forms of, 
of cooking there in Italy. And you're right. I mean, so many people think that Italian food is, you know, whatever you're going to get at your chain Italian restaurant, but there are so many regional differences and it really has to do with what's being grown in each of those regions. Um, and, and the availability of product, it's old world cooking because that's what's available. It's not this global impact of I can access things out of season whenever I want. They focus that food on what's available. So I guess that was a huge learning experience for you. Well, I mean, and this was 26 years ago. So, you know, I, uh, I'm also like, my brain is wired a little differently as a chef. I'm a very like a associative thinker, very visual and very like sensory. So I also, the funniest thing while I was there is they, they realized I was kind of bored. I didn't understand anything that was happening in class. So there's a tradition there in high school called Gita Scolastica or Gita Scolastica, where you basically have a week where you travel to a region of Italy and you experience things with your class with, you know, minimal chaperoning, as you might say. And um, so because of that, because they knew I was bored and I was just like sitting there reading books in English most of the time that they were like, well, listen, Stephen, you can go on all four of the Gita Scholastica to all four places. I was like, great. Where do I sign up? And That's so amazing. I went to places that included Sicily. I was in Sicily for a year and ate oranges and climbed Mount Etna. Um, I went to Sardinia and ate wild hog, uh, wild boar, chingale, they call it, and ate some of the sage and rosemary and kind of the wild wow. products of Sardinia and learned that the Sardo language, for example, is completely different than Italian, no resemblance um, as a Sicilian dialect. And so the last trip that I went on, which was incredible, and when I still have very vivid memories is the Cinque Terre, it's called, where it's a five-day hike along the coast near Genoa, where you basically every stop just eat huge amounts of focaccia drenched in the best olive oil you've ever had with pesto and and just the best seafood you've ever had and you're just overwhelmed by the gustatory sensation so that, that's really where i was like okay food is my life yeah oh my gosh man i i mean listener we're we're recording here in the morning and i just got done with breakfast and i'm <laughs> starving again just listening to that and to be immersed in it at such a young age and, and kind of identifying like okay food is my journey yeah, and in fact, that's yeah. that's amazing. Well, and it's so reflectory, like as you think back, because I have a son of my own now. He's eleven years old, and he's a budding chef. He's interested in food, and I was up. We were fishing rainbow trout uh, up in a high mountain reservoir here in Colorado, and uh, he asked me how to fillet a fish. We had never really caught such nice trout before, so he's like, "How do you fillet this?" And I'm like, "Well, all we have is a knife, so let's do this." And there was a bunch of like driftwood around, and I flashed back to a time in Sicily when I saw, still vividly recall, they. Um, there was a fishmonger in Sicily who was um, butchering and, and filleting live eel. And what he did was he took a simple nail and put it through the eel's gills and attached it to a large angled wooden cutting board and literally just filleted the eel still wriggling, put it into a bag and gave it to the nonna or the person passing by. And that was how they filleted the fish. So it was funny. Wow. When it's done, I was like, well, let's do that. So we took a nice flat piece of driftwood, put a little nail through the gill of the rainbow and just fillet it, flip it, fillet it, and you're basically filleting a live fish and it doesn't get much fresher or better than that. So I just think in food service, it's so interesting that so many things you learn along the way and you think back to that chef or that person that taught you or that visual memory of how to fillet the fish. Like it's uh, it's just an interesting way of thinking. And I think that's what attracts so many different minded thinkers to the field of culinary arts. Yeah, absolutely. So fast forward, you're 17. Yeah, and so then you're starting to move on and like what what was your next step? Yeah, so I became a line cook at a Cottage Pizza in Michigan. It's like one of the big places in Ann Arbor because there's the big house. If any of you are football fans, you know, 100,000 people go to University of Michigan football games. Guess where they all go out to eat afterwards? They all want to go to Cottage Inn Pizza. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so you're turning pies left and right. So that's where I realized like, oh, wow, I got to really like, you got to be fast. You got to be accurate. You have to be clean. You have to be efficient. And you have to be cordial to the people you work with. You, you know, it's a high pressure environment. You're always stressed. There's always too much going on that your brain can even manage or your hands. And so I was the pasta chef. So I started, I was always the pasta cook in every restaurant I worked. I was just the pasta person. And so I would just, you know, have that giant boiling water bath and just be dunking all those different sets of, you know, par cooked pasta or fresh pastas, depending on the, you know, level of fine dining I worked at. And so I was always the pasta guy, which, you know, is usually the last pickup. So usually it's the two right. or three minute pickup. So basically you're just obeying the grill cook, saute cook, or fish cooker, whoever's just passing orders down the line. So you get a little bit of abuse if you mess up, you know, this is like, um, I'm not gonna say abuse. Uh, you get, you get reminded gently if you mess something up. 
So, you know, things were, things were fast and furious, man. It was also the World Cup at the time. If anyone recalls, the Soccer World Cup was in the United States that year when I started. And um, I realized that I was with this very international crew, guys from West Africa, India, um, Central America, South America was like the cooking crew. And we would all like run downstairs and watch soccer games on our like five minute break and then run back upstairs. So I realized, man, these guys are having fun. This isn't just work. This is joy. This is, you know, global community of chefs. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then after that, I attended, I actually attended Oberlin college, a small liberal arts college in Northeastern Ohio, not far from Elyria or Cleveland, if that is resonates with people geographically. Uh, I went there for two years. I studied visual arts. Again, I have this visual way of thinking and I'm a creative type person. So I stayed there for two years, but you know, I was spending a lot of my money and my parents' money and didn't really know what I was doing in life. So um, after dropping out of Oberlin, at the age of 19, I moved back to my hometown and kind of had to figure things out a little bit. I only had one skill in life, which was cooking <laughs> or one thing, which I thought I was decent at. Right. So I um, went back to Ann Arbor, which has a pretty good restaurant scene. And I actually became a fishmonger for a year and a half. Um, I worked at Monahan's fish market. I know it sounds strange to be working at a high end fish market in Michigan, but we would fly in stuff from both coasts from, uh, you know, Apalachicola from the Gulf. We'd fly stuff in daily from, um, Northeastern United States lobsters and from the Northwest up more in your region, Patrick near, you know, all sorts of types of Northwest oysters and even abalone and interesting things that I'd never seen before. So that was a pretty, Oh cool yeah. Thing. Yep. That's awesome. I learned about, uh, you know, all that stuff. So anyway, I learned some things there and then I, um, met my wife there at the time as well. I was bartending by night and worked at a restaurant in Ann Arbor. So one of my favorite places of all time called the Del Rio, I met my wife and, you know, I had a few moments of life of like, wow, maybe it's time to settle down and stop meandering. But um, I'm also a British citizen. So I did move to London for a year um, and pursuing my other passion in life, which was rugby at the time. So I was always rugby and cooking were my guiding lights in my 20s. And uh, in London, I got experienced quite a global community, worked with a bunch of Brazilians from Bela Horizonte. I have to give a shout out to Bela Horizonte. Um, uh, some amazing cooks and uh Eventually settled back in the city of Chicago for 12 years, which again, incredible culinary scene. Um, had some of my most formative experiences there working at a regional Italian restaurant. I can't get away from Italy. <laughs> uh, I was the pasta cook once again at Fortunato, this really, really amazing restaurant that reminded me that you could have the best set of cooks in the world, the best food, the best menu, the best guidance and leadership. But you know, one thing goes wrong, you know, location, uh, something not quite, or maybe the community is not quite ready for the food you're serving. Uh, you know, things like that, that can just cause the restaurant's demise. And I realized how fickle the industry can be even for extremely yeah. people. So anyway, this is all segueing to like, you know, what got me into school nutrition. So if I'm meandering too much, you can redirect me now, Patrick. No, no, you're, you're, this is great. And I think one of the things I really enjoy is learning how much of a global culture you are able to, encounter working in kitchens, I think people sometimes don't realize um, how people from every walk of life, every nationality are found in kitchens. And there's a there's a camaraderie and a, a sense of brotherhood, not to use a, a pejorative there, but a sense of family that's created um, working with these people from around the globe that maybe you wouldn't interact with in any other walk of life, but you get in a kitchen where it's hot, where it's stressful, and you really do become a family and you start learning from each other about each other's cultures. And I'm sure that's really influenced you in your career. Well, and I think not only globally as in from other nations, but even socioeconomically within our country, you know, I grew up middle class, I would say. And, uh, you know, in those kitchens, I worked with ex-convicts. I worked with people right on the margins of society, you might say, that literally yeah. is trying to get by day to day and figure things out with, you know, several kids and divorced and coming out of jail and hard to get a job. And, you know, you just learn things about people because you're dealing with people from all elements of our own society. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I know I've worked with some folks that, um, you know, that, like you said, they come from different, different walks of life, different socioeconomic situations and um, folks that maybe I wouldn't necessarily choose to interact with in a social setting. And then I see them in a kitchen and they are pure artists in what they do and how they do it. And I'm not only that, but like I'm you see a different side of uh, you see a different side of these people. That well, and I, yeah, you know, so our first look gives you maybe not like the best impression, but you have to step out of yourself and take a moment to like learn who someone is, right? 
Yes. Unfortunately, my wife and I both worked in the restaurant industry for many years, but she was more front of house. I was back of house. And I still try and explain the camaraderie I have with these folks because I still in touch with most of the people I've worked with in my career. I try and pride myself on staying in touch with people. And, you know, it's the way I can explain is you work 10 hours shoulder to shoulder with somebody. You get to know them pretty well. And it's a teamwork, fast paced oriented environment that just pressurizes your relationship. So even if you don't like them, you um, learn to work together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's a, a translatable note there in child nutrition sometimes too, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't always get to work with the people that we love to work with, but we learn to respect them and work with them pretty well. Yes. And it, it was in the state of Chicago. If I could segue a little and talk about my first job in school. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I get geeked out talking yeah. about the restaurants. Me too. Oh man, I'm hungry as well. Man, I didn't eat but, enough breakfast. I try and have two breakfasts, two lunches and three dinners, but I haven't quite hit that mark today. Yeah, you must read a lot of The Hobbit. <laughs> so anyway, uh, my first time in school nutrition was extremely influential. This was early 2000s. This was 2005. Um, I got into school nutrition. I had just finished my undergraduate degree. I did eventually attain my degree in inner city studies education. I was extremely um, educated and immersed in a small school on the south side of Chicago called the Center for Inner City Studies. It's now called the Jacob C. Carruthers Center for Inner City Studies. Jacob C. Carruthers was an influential comedic scholar, Egyptologist, and just a very progressive Afrocentric thinker. And he um, was worked at the school as a professor for 32 years, along with a small cadre of also, I think, quite revolutionary thinkers, including Dr. Conrad Worrell, uh, the late Dr. Anderson Thompson, um, and several others who really promoted a form of scholarship in the inner city of Chicago, the South Side and Bronzeville neighborhood that really promoted Let's not study the inner city as a place where, you know, den of inequity or people, a place where people are, you know, just, you know, um, challenged in every way and intrinsically poor or intrinsically disadvantaged. Let's talk about the larger functions of economic society that have shaped these inner cities and, you know, lacked economic opportunity, restrictive covenants and housing. Um, you know, residential segregation. Let's talk about these things. So I learned a lot during that experience. Um, however, my one skill I had to fall back on once I graduated with a degree in inner city studies education was cooking. Right. So yeah. I thought to myself, how can I cook, keep cooking amazing food that I like and enjoy with a great team, but do it in a setting where I can help children, especially children in disadvantaged communities or um, urban communities at the time where like there's a great need for nutrition and health. Absolutely. Places where diabetes and obesity are rampant and so many, you know, lack of food access. So, so much of that came to bear in my experience of learning in Chicago that I thought, how can I combine these two things? So um, my wife at the time was working as an AmeriCorps volunteer at a school called Passages up in Uptown neighborhood. Um, there was a lot of recent immigrants in that community at that time, just arrived in the United States from all over the globe, back to the globalism. And um, there was a teacher there, a fifth grade teacher named Swati Mehta. Swati, if you're out there, I want to shout out to you and your um, husband, Darshan, who Darshan, her husband was a physician. And she proposed that we teach an eight week cooking class at the school. My wife was a teacher there. She was a specialist teacher as an AmeriCorps volunteer and I was a chef. So she said, hey, can you guys come teach an eight week cooking class on Tuesdays for, you know, 25th graders from all walks of life and all nations of the globe, many of whom don't speak English. And let's teach this cooking class. So um, fortunately, my wife and I had both been trained in a curriculum called Food is Elementary. It's an amazing food curriculum for anyone looking for a cooking class for kindergarten through fifth graders out there. Um, it's a curriculum created by Dr. Antonia Dimas out of the Cornell Food Studies Institute. Uh, it's phenomenal. It is vegan. It's, um, it is vegan curriculum. It is global and has uh, food from all cultures, including Native American uh, recipes. And it is just a phenomenal resource. So we taught that for eight weeks. That's her awesome. Husband, yeah. Um, her husband, Darshan, was a physician. So he bought all the food. We did it on a volunteer basis. I still remember those kids. They're just hilarious, you know, and I still, now they all graduated college and moved on to careers. But that for me was the hook. That was like, let's combine food, teaching children, culinary education, and like make this all spin. And that was, that was it for me. I was sold. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think like of all those <clears throat> children you touch how many stand over a, a pan in their own kitchen and think back like oh yeah I remember when I learned to do this technique or oh I need to make sure that I, I do this a certain way because that's what I was taught during that that class I took so many years ago and how that still resonates and that they're going to teach their 
friends, children, you know, partners, whatever, those techniques on how that just translates well, through generations. Yeah, I mean, culinary skill is one thing in acumen, but to be honest, what I hope is that they think back on that class and they think, man, that's when I learned that cooking was fun. Yeah. yeah and they cook with my friends, and they cook with my friends is even more fun. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so that was a really impactful experience. I then went on to a full-time position at, Pas or, I'm sorry, um, Perspectives Charter School. It was a small charter school in Chicago at the time. This was a time of great educational innovation. Uh, New Orleans and Chicago were kind of leading the way on creating public charter schools. This is post-Katrina in New Orleans. And, you know, leading the way of, you know, having innovative public charter schools become a part of the urban framework of schools. Um, there's some controversy there. There's some challenge. Some people were favorable to this, some were not. Um, you know, in New Orleans, reinvention had to occur based on the devastation of the city after Katrina. In uh, Chicago, it was more like, hey, let's take some ideas we think are working and try and make them, you know, weave them into the fabric so that parents have more choice. Um, I worked for a network of charter schools called Perspectives that then expanded and replicated. But initially, it was just one school, a small school in the South Loop. And my boss, Chef Lisa, I'm just also going to shout out Chef Lisa Gershenson if you're out there. One of my mentors, all-time mentors, was the at the helm there. And we were cooking amazing food. We were just making everything from pozole. That was a recipe created by my friend Carlos, Chef Carlos, who we also worked with from Guanajuato, from Leon. And uh, he had the best pozole recipe I've had to this day. Oh, wow. So pozole with, um, you know, fresh tortillas, um, lime, radish, uh, shredded cabbage, um, all the fixings, as we say. Um, and so anyway, she just like featured all kinds of cool stuff. We would hand cut pineapple and watermelon and cantaloupe each day. Um, however, this is where I had the realization in the wake up, man, it's a dreamy program, but financially, I don't know if we can keep doing this <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because we weren't making money. We were losing money. I mean, we were our own school food authority, but at the same time, like we were definitely spending a lot on food costs. And it, that was my first like, oh yeah, you have to balance food costs and labor costs and make this work. Like, especially if you're going to replicate and move from a school of 300 kids to eventually have 10 charter schools that serve 4,000 children, you got to right. some finances. I'm sure you can understand that, Patrick. A little bit of scalability going on there. Yes. So, um, so at that time, I did get invited to actually become a teacher. I was a classroom teacher for a year at their second charter school, which was called Perspectives Calumet, down in uh, the Auburn-Gresham neighborhood of the south side of Chicago around 71st in May, 79th in May. And um, I became a teacher, classroom teacher. They took a chance on me and I took a chance on them. And I became a teacher. I was a healthy lifestyles instructor, which encompassed, uh, I was the physical education teacher, PE. I was the um, nutrition education teacher. And I was even the sex education teacher for seventh and ninth graders. So I learned a lot that year. Yeah, I cannot imagine, like, I mean, first year in teaching and then having some some pretty tender topics to teach and ones that really um, are at the core of who we are as humans. I think that, you know, sometimes our education system, the the, the basic fundamentals, math, science, reading, you know, th those are held up so high but to be thrust into those um, impactful lessons that really are your day-to-day -day life, right? Physical education, nutrition, um, yeah. even, even the... Uh, <clears throat> you know, um, sexual education, like helping students really understand themselves and, and take that away. I mean, that's, that's such impactful work. It was wild. I mean, to be honest, I will say, to be honest, I, I did learn more from them than they did learn from me. I was, did not have any formal educational experience, was not a certified teacher at that time. Charter schools could have leeway to put any teacher in any role that they chose. And I, I you know, it was a humbling um, it was the most difficult professional year of my life because I was also outside of my comfort element, which was being in the kitchen and cooking. And so I really was challenged and I eventually found my way back into the kitchen at the same school. I became the food service manager at the same school um, the following year. So um, that was where I started my foray into working for food service management companies. I worked for Sodexo at that time. Sodexo by this point had taken over the food service. Um, for the entire network, partly due to those financial constraints that we were experiencing and the fact that we needed more buying power, more, um, you know, uh, a network of vendors that could provide the full service as opposed to kind of all the different smaller vendors we've been working with. And so that was my first time working for a food service management company. I worked, um, and it was a big high school. I mean, it's a thousand student high school and we served 700 lunches a day. So it wasn't quiet. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. 
you know, 99.8% um, African-American school community. This is a uh, 98% free and reduced um, socioeconomic situation. I mean, this is a, an urban school, you might say, and uh, on the South side of Chicago. And I, again, I learned so much and um, learned how difficult those jobs can be, especially given some of the challenges the students are, you know, bringing in from home or bringing uh, from their family. And, uh, you know, and that all, that all was while I was embedded in a larger system of Chicago public schools, you know, with over 600 schools. So I also was like, wow, this is a much bigger thing than just me cooking food and managing people. This is, this is a beast. This is a large urban system. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that was a very eye opening experience and understanding like, you know, uh, an organization that large, you're like a piece of a giant cog. And did, did you struggle with like feeling, um, how can you be effective just being a piece of it? Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I think it's always hard in our world to juggle the financials, the like weekly and daily and monthly budgetary concerns with like just trying to do the best job you can in terms of an interpersonal way with managing people, with working with others, like being a chef in terms of like, you're the face of the program and you are the manager, you are the person, the helm, the leader, while you're also trying to just juggle, juggle some of these I'm not going to say impossible, but highly challenging situations like how to get food in the door and how to, um, you know, retain employees. And like, wow, that was just, man, it was definitely eye opening. And I realized just the rigors of working at such a busy urban environment at a, at a school of that size. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's eye opening to, you know, you think about it with child nutrition and the, the whole aspect of what's done on the day to day um, by people in leadership positions, like, the dietetic piece is so small and yet it's such an important part of what we do, but the over overarching landscape seems to be that that budgetary piece. Am I doing the procurement the right way? Am I getting the right costing in? Am I getting the best products at the best price? And then, and that's only like 20%. The other, the other major chunk is really just relational. Am I building the team the right way? Am I supporting my people the right way? Am I getting them what they need to be able to be successful and execute this vision? Well, while also uh, managing up, while also managing up and understand the expectations of your own boss, who in many cases may be more of a HR and financial position of like, let's just make this thing spin. So, yeah, for sure. And at this point, at this point, too, I had not keep in mind, I had not been to culinary school. I had not been become a dietitian or been on the nutrition and dietetics paths. I had no formal schooling in culinary arts. I had just learned through the trade or come up through the trade, as they say. you know, I love food and I love people, but you also need more of a hard management skills and hard food skills to manage these operations successfully. 100%. So I realized a knowledge deficit for sure. So then my next job, I'll just kind of fast forward a little to my next jobs in Chicago because they were also super influential. I then went to work for an institution in the greater Grand Crossing neighborhood. You can look it up online and check it out. It's an amazing institution called the Gary Comer Youth Center. Um, C-O-M-E-R. Gary Comer was the founder of Land's End Clothing Company. He grew up in this greater Grand Crossing neighborhood back when it was more of a um, ethnic enclave, you could say, of a pastiche of Irish and Eastern European and all sorts of folks. And, um, you know, eventually over time became, you know, much more predominantly African-American community. It's the home to the South Shore Drill Team. Shout out to them. They're the, the main event at the Bud Villican Parade every year. So the South Shore Drill Team trains and practices there and we fed them too. Um, we fed, I was the kitchen manager and I managed a team of high school students. Those were my employees, was high school students between the age of 13 and 18 from the community, from the local schools. And they were, my task was to teach them basic culinary skills and feed the people. So it was also, you know, after school youth center. So we'd have anywhere from 50 to 300 students rolling in there after school. And we had to have food ready, hot and serving them. And um, it was all run by high school students under my, my sometimes steady home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in many ways, like it was no different than any other restaurant I'd ever worked at. People didn't show up. People got sick. People had to stay home. People's cousin got in trouble and they had to go hang out with them and go do something like, you know, like there's just always a variability that people are like, wow, you worked with high school students. I'm like, no, no, I just worked with people. Like these are just people. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, I had a whole staff of just call I shouldn't say just college students, but like at the time it felt like just college students had very little um, experience and had to train them up and basically put them through kind of a mini informalized culinary school they will get them to do what i need them to do when i was running a catering operation at the university because that's what we could afford to do and it's it's so rewarding to be able to 
teach people new things on a daily basis while also serving so many people at the same One, time. And two students really stick out in my mind. Robert Haynes, who was the sous chef, he became a sous chef because, man, Robert showed up every day with the right work ethic and just just was there, like right hand, right hand person, you know, and he became actually, yeah. I became sous chef of the kitchen. And so he, uh, Robert went on to great, great success. He has several children, lives in Chicago still for a while. He was the manager of backup house at the busiest cheesecake factory in the country in Chicago, downtown Chicago. Oh, wow. um, and then my other student, um, Damien, Damien Hillard, who um, later went to Kentucky, got a degree in pastry arts and became an accomplished pastry chef. And so those two students really stick out in my mind because they had it from the beginning. They had the tenacity, the stick-to-itiveness, the show up and just do the best job you can. And if it's not good enough, do it again. You know, make it nice yep. and make it swipe. And, and they also participated in CCAP, which was a culinary arts program, still exists in several urban centers called CCAP, where it's actually a culinary competition. So they were preparing for a competition, which involved, you know, making the perfect French omelet, doing the perfect chiffonade of basil, like getting everything right. And then that allowed yeah. them to get scholarships of five to uh, five to thirty thousand dollars, which they could then take to culinary schools, and CCAP is another awesome urban program I became a part of. That's amazing. So anyway, super impactful. Love those students. Love that environment. But eventually, I wanted to get back into more of the school nutrition side, like cooking for students in a school environment. So I then went to work for Sarah Elizabeth Eipel, who is the founder and um, still head of the Academy for Global Citizenship. So this was at the time a small charter school on the southwest side near Midway Airport. If any of you have ever flown through Midway, uh, we served a community, primarily uh, Latino community, Latino community on the south side, southwest side. Um, and in that school, our whole focus was all vegetarian school lunch, all vegetarian meals and all organic. One hundred percent organic was part of the, the mantra philosophy and mission. So oh, wow. You can imagine I had some challenges sourcing organic flour and organic sugar and things like that or organic yeah. everything. Um, so we had some challenges, but it was great. And it was all vegetarian and actually mostly vegan in concept and design. That's pretty cool. Um, I'm just I'm <clears throat> spinning my head just thinking about like, yeah, how, how to execute that, how to put it all together. So sorry about the, the pause there. I was uh just kind of imagining that, that process. Me, and let me break it down to specific, I'll break it down to some specific dishes back to sensory and visual. So try and imagine this if you close your eyes and think. Um, wake in the morning, students would get there at 7 a.m. for early before school activities. And we would already have a giant pot of steaming creamy quinoa. We would use a quinoa with like um, milk and uh, cream and a little butter and dried cherries and cinnamon and a little nutmeg and cloves and you know, by the time the students walked into school, this hallway is already filled with this hot, you know, and Chicago gets cold in the winter. You want something hot in right. the morning. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we laid a lot out for starters. And then, um, you know, for lunch, some of the fun stuff we did, we would do tofu nuggets, tofu sticks and fingers. Um, I don't know, all sorts of intricate things. A lot of beans, a lot of rice and beans, of course, uh, kind of a main staple, a mainstay. Um, yeah. Some Brazilian dishes. We did some Brazilian um, rice and beans combos. We did the pozole. I, I created a vegetarian pozole based on Chef Carlos's pozole recipe, but we used tofu instead of uh, pork or chicken. That was always a hit. Yeah, um, I bet. You know, so in some cases, I realized we could do meat, traditionally meat dishes that we could influence vegetarian. In other cases, you know, it didn't always work, but we, we'd give it a go. Yeah, um, absolutely. And in terms of USDA food crediting, this was back when tofu was first being credited. Like, as you probably know, tofu was only became allowable back in that period. I think it was that early 2000s. Um, the first USDA memo came out that said you can use tofu and credit it as an MMA. Um, I still remember reading that memo. <laughs> I think one of the challenges there was that they also at the time, this is getting a little technical, but they required the tofu to be a certain PDCAAS score, which is protein digestibility amino acid score. Okay. So I remember being a little frustrated because I went and tested some of the commercially available tofus at a lab like West Soy, you know, several commercially available tofus that we could procure and none of them met the PDCAAS score. <laughs> oh, interesting. So this was one of my first times of actually calling the USDA and saying, hey, so you said we can use tofu, but how do I figure this out? <laughs> yeah. And so it was funny. And at the time I also, you know, it's challenging with tofu because it's 2.2 ounces is required for one ounce of creditable. So 
it's a lot of tofu and yeah that is a lot <laughs> if you're doing two mma that's a lot yeah, of tofu. it's different than one ounce of cooked chicken for example so anyway this was my first my point in saying this is that this was my first foray into like wow okay you really got to learn how to credit foods you have to learn how to mmas and grains and I, this was my introduction to all this stuff right um, and i was working charwells thompson was the food service provider for the district so they made me submit menus every week and every month to make sure everything was credible so this is when i realized wow it's such threading the needle to do the nutrition stuff right the cost part right and vegetarian vegan and organic man i was like, mm-hmm. talk about threading the needle <laughs> seriously so and, and stuff the kids would eat right it's got to be palatable they have to right have yeah to yeah, I mean, so many menus look so great on paper, and then they just end up feeding garbage cans because they make the person who wrote the menu feel good, or the the school board who wants to see it go a certain way feel good. And yeah, the, the day, I mean, it's I mean, my our good friend Dale Hayes, it's the first one I ever heard that say this. It's not nutrition until it hits the belly, yeah. and uh, so you want to make sure that it's stuff that they love to eat. Exactly. And if anyone wants that recipe, by the way, it's, it's actually more of a method than a recipe, but I have it. So it's really, really good uh, vegetarian pozole with tofu and, and hominy. Um, and uh, you pair it with tortillas. Uh, you know, masa is now allowable as a whole grain. So you pair it with um, tortillas, you know, uh, shredded cabbage, uh, radish, uh, tortilla chips. You can crumble up on top of there. It's just it's so good. And if you're in a community, especially where pozole is, understood for what it is like you can man and you can of course uh, transfer it to the chicken or pork as well so yeah well i'm going to ask that you send it to me so we can uh, figure out a way to get that shared out with some folks because yeah. pozole in my house like when, when we're sick we don't make chicken noodle we make pozole yeah because um, it's just it's so nourishing and, and delicious and comforting. yeah and spice and the dried chilies and garlic and yeah it's so good so you know i don't have to explain that yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but menudo i don't know about menudo i've never seen anyone do menudo for school and so i feel like i'd be yeah a, the whole, yeah the whole tribe thing might be a little bit of a challenge for some folks so. i'll have to look up tribe and see if it's in the usda food buying guide yeah, yeah. it might be There's, you never know you never know anyway so that was it man and then i realized and then at that point in my career i was also making 16 dollars an hour um if that rings a bell that's like <laughs> and here i am you know 10 years into my career in city of chicago where rent is not cheap right making 16 an hour working at a school that i loved at a concept that i loved and the school has gone on to much critical acclaim ever since they're actually building a net zero campus in chicago i think it's a multi multi-million dollar new construction project um wow. and they still have some of the best food in chicago on the plate um, you know, the chef Eddie who took over for me, who was a parent at the school, I believe is still there at the helm, just doing amazing food every day for those kids. So that's amazing. You know, so anyway, that was it. But then I also woke up and my wife also gently reminded me that $16 an hour wasn't going to cut it. Um, right. in terms of long-term planning. So I was married at the time. So, um, you know, I was looking around me in the industry and I thought, man, who's got the letters next to their name that have the jobs that I want. I don't know if anybody's ever done this, but you look around and you see, you know, MS or CNSC or RD or things like that. And you go, wow, how do I get those credentials and how can I get those jobs? You know, like those higher level positions that pay more. And so I the two letters, the series of letters I kept seeing by people's names in my state agency, actually, for, you know, Illinois Department of Education and around the country, it, everybody seemed to say RD SNS. So, you know, of course, these are in the early days of Google. I'm like, what's an RD? <laughs> no? Okay, registered dietitian. How do I become one of those? So then I was like, okay, I said four-year nutrition degree and one-year unpaid internship. And I was like, well, man, I'm not going to start with that. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went to uh, SNS and I, you know, SNS, what is the School Nutrition Association? I mean, again, this is me being a little naive, but I'm 27. I've been working in schools, cooking good food, but I've been like, what is the School Nutrition Association? So... I was like, right. SNS. So I, and SNS just said, well, you need to have worked in schools for three years, certifiable experience, documented, and you need to pass this exam about school nutrition and menu planning and all this stuff. And I thought, you know, I could probably do that. So at the time I was taking the bus down, bus in the L, the L train and the bus to work. It took me about an hour to an hour and a half to get to work each day and back. So I thought, well, geez, I'm not really doing much. So why don't I just study this stuff? So I got the yeah. SNS study, study guide and I studied it three hours a day almost. And, you know, within three months, I went to the Illinois School Nutrition Association Conference. I took the test and well, God darn it, I had the SNS. So I was like, all right, well, got one in the bag. 
<laughs> and so, you know, that of course didn't lead to anything. It wasn't, an, it wasn't a raise. It wasn't, nobody even knew what it was. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, I'm a school nutrition specialist. They're like, okay, cool. <laughs> so then, but then I realized RD was more of a professional credential. This is more like you put in the work, you've, you know, worked in clinical settings, you have street cred with doctors, you know? And so I, um, I decided to make the big impactful life decision. You know, I had a three month old and a two year old, you know, Patrick being a parent, it's a bit challenging to have a two uh, and a two year old. <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine. So I was like, Hey, I came home with my wife. I was like, Hey, um, I want to go back to school. She's like, well, what do you mean? I was like, I'm going to go back to culinary school. I'm going to get a degree in culinary arts and culinary nutrition, and I'm going to become a registered dietitian. And she had, of course, the logical questions of, well, how much is it going to cost? And uh, how much is it going to upend our lives? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) But again, this is one of those moments, many of which I've had recently, where I know I married the right person. And she was like, well, then let's make it happen. So I was like, okay. So um, I... Uh, I attended to, or I applied to and was accepted to Johnson and Wales university in Providence, Rhode Island. And I did take some sort of special exam they offered, which allowed you industry credit. So they basically said, if you can pass this test, once again, you know, hundred question test and you get 90, right. Then you will give you, you know, two semesters worth of credits. So I said, okay, cool. So did that. And it allowed me to then move to Providence, Rhode Island with my family, moved across the country and, um, you know, took out a bunch of student loans and I even had private student loans to pay for childcare for my kids, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, it was not without great sacrifices as you know, you can imagine. So, but you know, here I was going to one of the best culinary institutions in the country, if not the planet and learning from some amazing certified master chefs and learning from a bunch of 20 year olds who, you know, some of whom took the industry seriously, some of whom did not, I still am in touch with the ones who did, <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was a great experience. And in a year and a half, I got my degree in culinary arts. I took like 19 or 22 credit hours per term or whatever was the maximum they told me I could take. And um, in a year and a half, I got my associates in culinary arts and my bachelor's in culinary nutrition. So that was when I ran into classes like biochemistry and, uh, you know, uh, advanced clinical nutrition therapy and things like that. And so, yeah, um, yeah, I really got an education in that part of things. (laughs) And so the cool thing about the program at Johnson and Wales is, you know, they used to have a culinary nutrition program in Denver here as well, but um, they closed this campus uh, a couple of years ago. But essentially the coolest thing about that program is it's the only one I know of to this day in the country that has nutrition as in you're getting taught by clinical nutrition managers and clinical nutrition instructors. And then you also have chefs who are creative, who are experienced and who say, Hey, let's cook something delicious for the people. And so I still think that combination is quite rare in, in post-secondary education. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost the, the realm in which we operate now, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a bunch of chef RDs being cranked out of these programs who are very highly skilled in both areas. So, um, and then, you know, of course, if, for those of you who aren't aware, becoming a registered dietitian also involves a very rigorous 1200 supervised hours of practice. It represents about one year of service and, um, which is unpaid. And that is a great sacrifice and a big challenge for our profession because we talk about diversity and trying to include everybody and have a, a, a workforce in the dietetics field that's very inclusive and diverse. But yet, wow, you're asking people to put their life on hold for a year and work unpaid. Oh, it's, it's difficult. That's a huge challenge. I mean, I don't care what industry you're in, right? I mean, not everyone has the grace to have, you know, a financial backing to be able to survive for a year without employment. And, you know, all the things that come with that, right? Uh, Benefits of health insurance and and all these things and not every program offers those, or if they do, they're an exorbitant rate. So you're right. I mean, it really does create a hardship um, for a lot of folks, especially, you know, if they're coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And, yes. And there, there are a couple that do pay. Um, there are only a couple of their federal programs. There's one through the Veterans Administration that does carry a small stipend since Veterans Administration is greatly in need of dietitians. Um, and there are some that have student loans available, but many do not. So it's definitely challenging. But, you know, I got through it. Um, I did a program, actually, which is an amazing program out of Utah State University. It's called a distance program where it's actually the onus is on the student to set up all their own rotations. So I literally had to go and network and meet people and get denied interviews with people and then get referred to someone else and you have to basically set up all your rotations about a year a year to six months in advance just to even apply to these programs so wow um, it's called distance learning and the academy has actually 
created more opportunities for these because they realized people need more flexibility and they need to network with people in their home zone. And that that's also advantageous when it comes to jobs and employment, because then you've already got the network, you know? Right. Um, and my program was one of very few at the time that has school nutrition focus. So if anyone out there is interested in school nutrition focused dietetic internship, Utah State University might be your spot. Um, it also offered, you could do it anywhere from seven months to 12 months, depending how fast you wanted to go. Um, I ended up completing rotations. You know, this is where my education just kicked into gear because then you're working 40 hours a week with advanced clinical dietitians. So um, I worked at a clinic at Miriam Hospital on the east side of Providence. And all I did for th uh, about a month long was counsel patients at various stages of bariatric surgery. So contemplating gastric bypass or bariatric surgeries for weight loss primarily. Um, a week before they went into the surgery, a week after the surgery, when they're still in the healing process, uh, six months after when they're struggling to maintain weight after uh, a very viscerally challenging experience, you know, so that's just the type of experience, you know, I worked in ICU units, I worked in long term care, where you're working with 80 to 100 year old patients, you know, some of our most vulnerable. Um, worked in a WIC clinic for the first time. I didn't know much about WIC. I learned a lot about WIC in six weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible program. I mean, I had to prick children's fingers to test their iron content and they'd be screaming, running out of the room. And I'd be like, well, this isn't exactly what I signed up for, I thought. <laughs> it should make a drastic difference in those kids' lives. You know, so and that's when I also realized that there's an interesting matrix of nutrition programs in our country, everything from, you know, birth to demise, you know, from WIC mm -hmm. and, and pregnant mothers to, you know, school nutrition and Head Start programs and, you know, the whole matrix of the world we live in and that there really is a cradle to grave, if you could say, kind of nutrition network in our country that is, uh, you know, has a lot of opportunity, a lot of potential, but is also very uh, challenging to navigate as a profession. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So anyway, I finished that degree and I actually had to put my dietetic internship on hold for those economic reasons we mentioned, which was I ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I called my internship director and said, Hey, I kind of need to go to work for a year. And she's like, well, yeah, but I want you to finish the program. I was like, don't, don't worry, don't worry. I'll finish the program. It's good. <laughs> so she's luckily Jenny Oler is her name. And she said, yeah, okay, let's, we can do this. So then I went to work as the um, food services director in Watertown, Massachusetts for one year. Um, and that was an amazing experience. So fun. I mean, Watertown is one of the greatest food towns in this country. It is um, largely Armenian, a lot of Armenian population, but also people from all over the globe. Um, it's a suburb of Boston and man, the food there was incredible. We had the best produce house I have ever worked with called Russo's Produce. Um, also now out of business, but, um, every morning at 5am I'd go see my buddy over at Russo's and he'd tell me what was good that day. And he'd show me some stuff and I'd literally pick out the stuff, put it on the truck, drive it back to the central kitchen, which really wasn't much of a central kitchen. It was a high school kitchen and there was only four schools in Watertown. Um, and it's only, you know, two square miles. So it wasn't a huge logistical operation, but we had the best food we could. We made soup every day, fresh out of the scraps of the other day's produce and, you know, just really, really fun environment and very food centric. That's awesome. So, yep. And then, uh, Colorado, you know, coming out to Colorado, I, had the opportunity after a year in Watertown to come out here and bring my family again. My wife was pursuing her education and her master's degree here at the University of Colorado and uh, everything kind of worked out and uh, worked here for uh, eight years and uh, worked here for eight years now and worked largely under the mentorship of Chef Ann Cooper, who, again, one of my guiding lights and heroes in life who has really successfully managed to transition a career from fine dining, high, high class hotels and catering events for 3000 people and then thought, wow, I can translate these skills into feeding children. And so she remains a, a mentor who has been able to, you know, merge these two fields of culinary arts and high end cooking with feeding children. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's, I'd love to hear her story one day. We've interacted a few times. So I'd love to hear her journey and how she <clears throat> went from high end fine dining into child nutrition and you know, being able to talk with a few different chefs about it, but we haven't been able to get in, in depth as you and I have been able to today, um, Stephen. And I yeah. really just, I really appreciate listening to your story. And I hope, I hope folks um, appreciate listening to that journey as well, knowing that um, it's, it's not easy to get to where we are sometimes. And we take a lot of different roads and all of us have our own different journey to get to where we're at. But the impact yeah. we have working with children and trying to help, you know, provide better health outcomes for families and children is imperative work. 
Yes. And if I could finish with just a few unifying themes that have, you know, I've talked about a lot of things. And as you can tell, I've done a lot in my career. I've had, man, wow, probably 20 different jobs, including all the restaurants I've worked at around the globe. So it's been fun. It's And my career is only halfway over. So I'm so excited for next phase. But in terms of school nutrition, these are, as we thought about doing this podcast, I thought about a few things. And I just wanted to mention before we, we break here. Please, please, please. Um, you know, I saw two of my absolute heroes in the food world on Sunday at this uh, conference in Denver. They spoke back to back, which was just beyond amazing. Um, Marion Nessel, who's a, you know, extremely accomplished uh, nutrition expert and, you know, head of food studies programs at New York University. And uh, she always has interesting things to say. And she, in her late career period, is being very frank and just talking very openly about, you know, our economic systems and how they influence our food, um, how, you know, while positions may be controversial, but they may be the right position. Um, they may be ahead of their time. Um, so she just was like always a progressive thinker and hero of mine. Um, right after Marion spoke Temple Grandin, who again, well-known um, scientist, author, uh, you know, who happens to also be on the autism spectrum, has autism spectrum disorder and has probably influenced more than anyone else the way animals are brought up um, cared for and all the way through to their end of life process in this country. And so what Temple's, one of Temple's things that I really appreciate on Friday was someone asked a question, they raised a, their hand. She can be a little abrupt at times, which I'm sure she'll admit. And uh, someone raised their hand and said, Hey, I wanted to ask about the politics of, and they, and she didn't let him finish. She said, I'm not here to talk about politics. She said, I'm here to talk about food. <laughs> so, I love I, that. I love yeah, that. You know, every once in a while, we do get deep in the politics of everything, including you know USDA and WIC and interlacing nutrition programs and SNAP and TANF, and it's so much. You know, that's like it's just nice to be reminded we're talking about food and we're talking about people. And so, my bottom line in the end in my career, I've had a lot of pause to reflect recently, and for me, like my number one is educational equality and what I think of is the right for every child and young adult in this country to have access to equal educational opportunity. And that for me includes nutrition as a fundamental piece. I just think expanding access to USDA nutrition programs is so important, whether that's FFVP, turning students on to unusual fruits and vegetables, whether it's dinner programs under CACFP, which allow, you know, a third meal, substantive meal each day for children, experiencing food insecurity, you know, building healthy bodies and brains and some of those, you know, just physiological and developmental connections that we can continue to make for students as we educate them on culinary arts and producing food for themselves. Like this is, that's where it's at to me. That's the bottom line. That's the sweet spot of the work. And when the days get hard out there, that's what we need to remember is why we're doing this. And for me, that's fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there are so many great programs that are offered through USDA FNS and um, sometimes I think that we look at them as challenges, but they're there for a purpose and to, to grab onto and, and use in your, your programs, your districts, your communities, whatever, whatever the right action is um, for the program and, and be able to, like you said, help, help families, help children get the access to nutrition in equitable ways that are being provided. Well, and during the last two and a half years during the pandemic, it's exposed glaring weaknesses, in, at least in our county and our system. I mean, we, we didn't know the extent of the food insecurity that was here until these things opened up. And we thought, wow, this is a great need that we just never saw before. You know, everything from literally no food in the cupboard to food pantries being overwhelmed by demand to two working parents and no one's home. So children have to open a can and figure out how not to cut themselves to eat dinner. I mean, right. We, we learned a lot and we continue to learn a lot from our families and from our children that we serve. Yeah. And I mean, let's not forget that, you know, we're, we're still experiencing supply chain issues and we're experiencing increased costs of goods because of some of those issues. And um, the need is still so, so prevalent um, yeah, in our and communities our- where access to food is still just, it's it's needed. It's necessary. It's it's a, it's a it's a human right. It's a fundamental yeah. right to be able to eat. And amidst all that, too, most of our people in school nutrition. I know ninety five percent of my employees here in my large district I currently work in, one hundred seventy people. Most of them have children at home. Most of them have grandchildren. 
in their world or nieces and nephews they care for. So I do think as a final note, you know, do some self-care out there, people. If you're listening to this and you're in school nutrition, take care of yourself every once in a while. Everyone in this field is here for a reason. We have huge heart. You have huge heart. You're here to serve. But at the same time, we have to take care of our own mental and physical health to the degree where we can go back and work and be the best people we can be, you know, so take a minute for self-care. If I have one piece of advice right now, this, you know, October, 2022 is, you know, as we move back into winter and, um, you know, take care of yourself, do something for yourself every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, I, you said it best. It's, it's so important because we can't serve others if we're not serving ourselves to be able to maintain our, our quality of sanity, our own health, whether that's physical, mental, social, emotional, spiritual, like it, it needs to be balanced. So Stephen, Chef, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, you know, we've known each other for a handful of years now and I learned so much more about you. Um, it was such a pleasure and I, I hope others can, you know, if they're not in child nutrition and they hear your journey and say, you know, I'm kind of on a similar journey and there's something I want to do impactful with my life. You know, child nutrition is such a great place to land and have that impact every single day. Absolutely. And I still, I still call it when I talk to other colleagues in university sector, corporate dining hospitals, I always say, man, you got to come over to the promised land. I'm telling you. <laughs> Seriously, it might be the one culinary field where the grass actually is a little greener. I, I, I truly believe that because you do get some quality of life, but you get to make an impact every day of it. Yeah. You're just yeah. not making in restaurants or hotel or maybe hospital, but yeah, we still have different. converts and we still seek converts as we, we practically put in our ads for employees. We say, Hey, been working in restaurant or food service for many years, looking for a change. Uh, you know, do you want to have Saturdays, Sundays and holidays back? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> we, pretty, we pretty much tell people that we say, come on, like check us out. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of districts provide benefits too, where restaurants don't. Yeah, health insurance and people's eyes kind of go, what? Are you kidding me? Are you pulling my leg? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Dental? What? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we still speak, and we still need more talented culinarians in this field for sure. Oh, there will never not be a need for it, right? I no. mean, it's, no. it's, uh, it's kind of one of the few fields really that is recession proof employment issue proof, right? Like we're all like the people who were working during the pandemic when other people were at home on leave or paid leave or whatever were child nutrition professionals. They were out there serving meals, making sure kids got fed, make sure families got fed. Um, and there's always a need for people. There's now, always a need for people in these programs. Especially right now in leadership. When I really look at these, you know, around the country and look at some of these even large urban districts with in need of leadership, there are so many opportunities in this field right now for leadership and management that I think someone, if they do come over to this sector could very quickly make an impact and move up the ranks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you've got the, the background in working in hospitality, working in food service management, um, you don't have to be a chef. You know, it could be someone who's been a, a kitchen manager. At, I mean, the, the logistics of working as a kitchen manager at the uh, Cheesecake Factory in Chicago, like you yeah. mentioned, one of your colleagues. I mean, that's something I can't even wrap my brain around, you know, <laughs> in a menu that's like bigger than a Tolkien novel. And you've got all these people working and it's that many covers to, to pump out all the time. I mean, people like you, people like that, come over to Child Nutrition. We could use you because yes. you've got innovative, creative ideas to make, make things better and make things happen. Yes. Although I will say you may have to learn to curse. Don't you may have to learn to not curse or curse less, as we said. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No <laughs> making people cry at walk-ins for sure. Yeah, yeah, don't make anyone cry. That's another rule of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We definitely All right. well yeah. thank you. All right, Steven. Thank you so much. And catch us on the next um mix up. And those of you that want to share your story about your journey in child nutrition, contact me at chef at BICN.org and I'll reach out to you and we could probably set up a podcast and, and chat more about your journey if you want to share out how you came to child nutrition. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Join us next time as we continue to mix it up with culinary experts from the child nutrition community. I've been your host, Chef Patrick Garmong from the Culinary Institute of Child Nutrition. Hey, don't forget to wash your hands. project has been funded at least in part with federal funds from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Food and Nutrition Service through an agreement with the Institute of Child Nutrition at the University of Mississippi. 
The contents of this publication do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, nor does mention of trade names, commercial products, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. The University of Mississippi is an EEO AA Title VI, Title IX, Section 504, ADA, ADEA employer. In accordance with federal law and U.S. Department of Agriculture policy, this institution is prohibited from discriminating on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability. To file a complaint of discrimination, write USDA Director, Office of Civil Rights, Room 326W, Whitney Building, 1400 Independence Avenue, Southwest, Washington, D.C., 202 or call 202-720-5964. USDA is an equal opportunity provider and employer.